Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode eight of Conversations with the Code Nine Foundation. This episode, we are joined by someone that I've long viewed as an inspirational leader and someone that I don't mind saying that I often turn to for a piece of advice or two, and that's the CEO of Ambulance Victoria, Tony Walker. Tony, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my absolute pleasure, Erin. Thanks for the opportunity. Now, listen, your bio is pretty impressive, and I'm sure most of our listeners will be very familiar with who you are and your body of work. But for those that aren't, look, over 30 years' experience working in a range of senior clinical governance, education, and operational roles. Look, lots of various board level and professional association appointments published in the peer-reviewed literature with yours truly, I don't mind admitting. Um, Your contributions to the pre-hospital field have been recognised with the award of the Ambulance Service Medal. And last year, I know at the Code 9 Foundation, we were super pumped to find out that you were nominated and selected as a finalist for the 2019 Australian Mental Health Prize. But over the years, when I've spoken to paramedics, both past and present about you, The one thing that really seems to stand out the most is the way that you have really driven the culture change at AV, which has slowly but surely really started normalising conversations around mental health. And I, for one, have shamelessly pinched your line of getting a checkup from the neck up. And I wonder at the end of the day if it's the, the role that you've played in really helping to break down the stigma that's attached to mental health as one of the things that you'll really look back on at the end of the day and, and be proudest of? Well, it's a really interesting comment. I think I was asked by someone just recently what I would consider my legacy in the role as CEO of Ambulance And um, it's a privilege to be in this role and to, to be able to influence you know, the well-being of our staff but also the response we provide the community. But for me... Um, um, the biggest uh, the biggest legacy I'm looking for at the end of this, as I said, was um, to, to this colleague of mine, was uh, I'm hoping to have a workforce that is well and healthy um, and I'm remembered for making that better. That's that's the most important thing to me, um, um, that, that you know, you, we should never have a situation where you come and do what I think is one of the best jobs in the world and that you're, um, you're negatively impacted on by that. Um, um, both at a physical or mental health level. So that's that's the thing I'm looking to to see as my legacy at the end of my career. Um, and you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll, we'll. I know we're better today than we were, and I know we'll be better tomorrow than we are today. So it's that constant journey of improvement. Yeah, I like that, a constant journey of improvement. I think, look, you certainly are well on the way to achieving that legacy because, as I said, whenever I talk about mental health within the emergency services, your name inevitably comes up as an example of who's doing a great job, not only here in Australia but I think world-leading. And we've certainly had people visit, and I know you met with Jo Mildenhall, who was a Churchill fellow who came out recently, and she was blown away by the amount of work that we're doing here in Australia and Victoria is leading that certainly with your amazing work that you're doing with with uh, groups like, you know, the, the, peer, support, uh, the uh, peer Dog Support Group, which I absolutely love. I mean, how can you not love those beautiful dogs <laughs> that you have? But I think certainly that must make you very proud that uh, you're not only leading the way here nationally but internationally people are coming and looking to what you do within Ambulance Victoria and saying, wow, that's pretty groundbreaking stuff and we need to pretty much copy what you're doing and take that home and learn from that. Oh, look, it, it's, it is very gratifying to have people want to look at what we're doing and, um, 
and to, to give that sort of feedback about where we're going. I think it also can be a bit of an indictment on how others are doing as well, because I, I know we're not perfect in this space. We've got an awful lot of other work to do here. And, and, and so for me, you know, it's really important that we don't become complacent, that we don't, we, we, we don't drink our own bathwater, so I often say to our people, that we don't get too... Uh, too pumped up by what we hear from others about the work we're doing um, because I know every day I hear from our paramedics and corporate staff and volunteers who are you know, sharing their mental health um, um, journeys with me that make me know I've still got a lot of work to do, uh, particularly in some of the really wicked issues in the organisation, the wicked problems around um, um, you know, dealing with, uh, dealing with um, organisational change and dealing with um, um, those, type of, um, those type of workplace factors that that, you know, in, in essence, are driving a lot of the, um, the mental health issues that I know my workforce and other workforces are experiencing. It's not always the case, as you see. It's the environment and the, uh, and, uh, and the workplace factors that, that contribute significantly to it. And they're really hard issues to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. Because we know that working within emergency services can be a huge mental health and, and emotional roller coaster. And I guess just holding it together on the job can certainly take its toll and can and does result in first responders experience a range of mental health injuries due to just doing that professional role. So we know that as part of a broader workplace strategy, you guys at Ambulance Victoria have encouraged paramedics to openly discuss the ways that their profession impacts their personal well-being. So I'm wondering if you can share with us some of the, some of the results that have actually been highlighted through the work that you guys have been doing. Yeah, very happy to, Erin. So if I look back at Ambulance Victoria, you know, we've been focusing in the mental health and wellbeing space for most of my career, for 30-something years. Now, we, we, we were one of the first organisations to establish a crisis counselling unit using psychologists. We've developed our peer program. We've had chaplains in place. And, and it became... So you look at that and you go, well, actually, we should be doing okay but really, when I came into the role of CEO, um, the, the wake-up call for me was the issue around the um, numbers of suicides that our staff were uh, that were occurring amongst our staff. And you know, when we got some external validation by the coroner at the time to help us understand it, it became clear that we were had a higher representation of suicide in our organisation than in the broader community or other emergency services. And when we unpacked that, one of the key things behind that was stigma that people were just not prepared to talk about their mental health for fear of being seen to be weak um, or having an impact on their career um, um, and um, or that they're, because we, they've been sort of brought up in an environment where you suck that stuff up. And so we spent a lot of time working with our staff to help break down stigma. And you talked about the check up and the neck up before, which is, you know, I have to say that's actually a Don Gilly statement. I borrowed Oh, is it? So, yeah, it's Don's. Uh, I didn't know Don's, that. So, you know, he's, uh, we've um, blatantly borrowed it from Don over the years, but it's actually his. Um, but stigma for us is really where we focused our energy. So, and, and the more we got to understand that working with groups like Beyond Blue, particularly, and uh, Phoenix and Black Dog, was that um, the breakdown stigma, um, the first part of that is that you actually have to normalise a conversation. And it starts from the top. I talk often about um, seeing a psychologist regularly. I talk about my own mental health. Um, and for us to get our staff talking about it, what they need to see was some of the most respected senior clinicians in the organisation who actually are prepared to talk about their experiences. And that was life-changing. When you've got, um, you know, um, respected paramedics um, um, who people look at every day and, you know, look up to and go, these, these guys and girls are you know, amazing people, and they talk about their, their um, history of depression 
they talk about the day they pick up the phone to talk to a psychologist for the first time and how it made a difference in their lives. Now, one of them talked about seeing their GP and, you know, I was just struggling to get out of bed every morning and you know, I was diagnosed with depression and treated and got well. Um, that, that started getting people talking about it. Um, um, it's still an issue for us. So, so stigma is still an issue in emergency services um, and we're working hard to try and break that down to create a conversation where people feel, I don't know how to describe it, I want an organisation where people feel just as safe and comfortable talking about their mental health injury as they would about their back injury around the mess room table. We're getting there, but, you know, we can't ever stop um, uh, having to open that up uh, to, to, to encourage our staff to talk about it even more. Yeah, and I think they're really important things to, to focus on. And I think certainly we've done the big 2018 um, national survey through Beyond Blue of, of some 21,000 emergency service personnel. And one, one of the really um, interesting findings that jumped out to me from that was that stigma was an issue, but not so much that we stigmatise each other, but we self-stigmatise. And that was really interesting to me, is that we are more concerned about um, the stigma yeah, on ourselves. We're not. If someone else has that mental health injury, we don't stigmatise them, but we stigmatise ourselves. And have you noticed that at all within within the ambulance service? Absolutely. I think we, um, and, and it's interesting when I, I look, try and understand that, because it is an issue that we have to spend a lot more time working through. Um, you know, I, you know, I think part of the issue is we, we see um, often the, um, the most complex mental health issues in the community. They're often the things that are uh, driving, um, um, you know, um, driving the cases we're attending. And we look at those members of our community with significant mental health issues and go, well, that's not me. I'm not like that. So I, therefore, I can't have a mental health problem. It must, just, must be something else. Um, or I can get through this. You know, this is ridiculous. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm well. I, you know, I have a family. I, you know, this is just a little bit of a glitch. I can get through it. And one of the things we found made the biggest difference was when we stopped talking about diagnosis and we started talking about symptoms. It became much easier. So using the mental health continuum was a really good tool for us to help people start um, normalising the conversation around mental health and how they're feeling, or how what they see in others. So it allows you to you know, realise, actually, I'm not sleeping as well as I was. I am drinking a bit more than I should have been or was previously. Um, you know, I am uh, more grumpy than I was. Um, those are things that you can look at and go, actually, I have got some things here that maybe I'm not quite right. I'll try and do some self-management techniques to start with. If they don't get better and this continues, then the flag is to seek some professional help. So I think creating that literacy amongst the workforce is really important to, um, uh, to enable people to feel more comfortable talking about how they're feeling rather than the brand of the diagnosis, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so we, we often talk about this normalising the conversation around mental health and there's, you know, the great initiative by, you know, the Are You OK Day and we talk about asking, are you OK? But I quite often get the feedback as, well, that's that's great, that's an important step in asking, are you OK? But I'm really nervous then, what if someone comes back and says no? And that's something I've been really actively, you know, trying to do recently, particularly during the pandemic, is I often find that our default answer to whenever anyone says, how are you, is to just defaultly say, yeah, I'm fine, I'm good, even when we're not. And so recently when things have been a bit tough, I'm like, actually, yeah, today's not a great day or I'm struggling a little bit today. And people can quite often be a little bit taken aback because they're not quite, they're not used to actually responding to a negative sort of response like that. So I'm wondering how how or if you guys with Ambulance Victoria in terms of normalising the conversation, 
if you provide any kind of training or education around how to have those tricky conversations because we know that generally it will be our work colleagues and our mates that are going to be the first people or among the first people apart from our loved ones who are going to notice that something's not quite right. So how do we engage in those conversations? It's not just asking, are you okay? It's having that actual conversation and that can be tricky. It can be, Erin, and actually you're absolutely right. I think when we uh, first identified a number of issues a few years back around um, 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 our workforce and how we, we engage differently around mental health, um, one of the things that Beyond Blue helped us understand um, was that, um, you know, it's not just about how we are ourselves, but it's about how do you have a conversation with someone you're worried about. So one of the pieces of work we did as part of our um, um, uh, mental health training and, and engagement for all of our staff was to also work through how they can have those conversations. So we actually um, role-played um, um, to actually help people start having conversations with people to unpack the issues of, um, that they might be experiencing um, and also to then know what, how to refer them on to, you know, to ask the questions, you know, are you thinking of suicide? You know, that's a pretty hard thing to ask yeah. someone. But, but when you go through that in the role-play and actually can learn to do that, it can make sense to, to actually with someone it makes it a bit more easier uh, to do. And I think that those were the things that were really important to us, that it was not only looking at yourself, but actually giving people the skills to be able to ask the, the questions of their colleagues. Because um, uh, um, that was one of the things we were getting a lot of feedback from staff about was that sense of, geez, I knew Joe was struggling a bit, but I didn't realise. And I, you know, I asked him if he was doing okay, and he said he was, and I feel really bad now, and I, like, I wish I had been able to do more. So, Creating that, um, that environment where people can actually um, practice those skills, um, I, I think helped. Um, you know, again, it's not perfect, and we've got to keep working on it. Um, but it is um, it is an important part of um, mental health literacy. Is also how do you have that conversation with someone else? So within those kind of uh, workshops and within that feedback, so just for our listeners, Tony, you know, who might be struggling with that, and exactly, you know, we have those kind of issues within our Code 9 membership where we're concerned about our mates and and sometimes they will be very honest and say, I have been thinking about suicide. You know, what are there appropriate responses to that or, or do we just guide people on to support services? It's, it's again, really good question. I think it really depends how comfortable you are. So I think if you're, you know, I know there are a number of our people that are, are working in this space all the time that are really comfortable having those deep, deep conversations, um, um, particularly a lot of our peers and others. Um, if it's someone that doesn't do that often and, you know, you've, you've, you've been through some of this training and all of a sudden you start having a conversation, I think it's really about saying, well, look, you know, um, I, it's important we talk to someone about that. Mm. So it's that sense of knowing the referral pathways yeah. to be able to talk to someone, I think, and, um, and um, you know, importantly being able to not feel that you can't make a difference, that, you know, you can connect them with the right people because there are great services out there either within organisations or, or externally that we can we can connect people up to. So I think it is that sense of um, that sense of um, um, understanding and that sense of understanding where you can refer to. And I think that's so important for everybody who's listening, whether you're a first responder or a family member or just one of the you know our community members who's listening, is that you don't have to. And this is something that I have certainly been guilty of in the past when I've been doing research with some of my 9/11 responders and trying to do too much. And I think we need to remember that we're not mental health 
professionals. We're not trained in this area. We are friends and colleagues and we don't need to try to be more than that and we need to be there to listen but when it becomes too much we need to say we are here to support you but we need to guide you onto the right support services for you and so if that means calling triple o as much as the person that you're speaking to might not want that at the time if you feel they're in crisis that might be the best thing for both of you and to not try to do something that's um that you're not qualified to do and not trained to do i think that's really important uh lesson for for all of us because i know i've certainly taken on too much in the past and that then takes a vicarious trauma toll on us as well. Um, listen, Tony, yourself and AV have been welcome supporters of the Code 9 Foundation, for which we are incredibly grateful. But some of our listeners might not realise that your link to Code 9 actually dates way back to 2012, when you were still manager of operations for AV and had the uh, maybe dubious honour of cutting off the first lock of Don Gilly's still flowing long hair that he still had back then, as part of an event that he was having to raise awareness about depression and anxiety among paramedics and of course most of our listeners will be very familiar with Don who you mentioned before and Don I'm sorry if you're listening I didn't realize that the line that I thought I was pilfering off Tony was actually yours so now I will have to dutifully um, acknowledge you as the uh, owner of that Uh, but yeah back in 2012 obviously there was a growing awareness of the mental health impact of working in emergency services And fast forward on to 2018, as I mentioned uh, previously, we had the big Beyond Blue national survey of some 21,000 emergency service personnel. And we also had the Australian Senate inquiry into the mental health of the people behind Triple O. But when we talk to people still out in the field at the moment, there's still some sense of frustration that in the years that have followed, we really haven't made a huge amount of progress. They feel like we've done the research, we've done the surveys, we've had the inquiries. When are we going to see change? And listen, I I spoke to um, Victoria, or outgoing Chief Commissioner of Victoria Police, Graham Ashton, in one of our recent podcasts. And Tony, I'm going to ask you the same question that I put to Graham. We've got this pretty good understanding of what the problems are. What do we need to do to move forward from here in, in your perspective? Yeah, so it's a really, again, a really good question. I, I mean, um, if I look at, um, I mean, I look at our own organisation. You know, we've we've invested really heavily over the last few years um, uh, to to improve the mental health and well-being of our staff. But I, I think the the one thing for me is, and I come back to this term a lot, and it sometimes gets people a bit surprised that I talk about this in the context of mental health, but it makes sense. You can't you can't manage what you don't measure, and and um, you know. Putting in programs, for example, our peer dog program and, uh, and you know, increasing chaplaincy, putting in new psychology services, all those things, um, they, um, they, unless you're actually measuring the impact of that, unless you're actually putting it in a baseline, implementing something new, seeing what difference it makes and then modifying, then the risk is they can become a lot of window dressing and don't actually make a real difference to our work, to your workforce. So, so for me, I think... But fundamentally, it is about having a really clear action plan that is managed from the board down, from your executive down, that clearly identifies what is it you're going to do. How are you going to impact across the life cycle of your staff? Um, because the needs of a new paramedic are different to the needs of a retired paramedic, for example. Um, how do you how do you ensure your services meet the, the needs of um, the various uh, cultural and uh, um, and other differences in your workforce? So, so for me. 
it is it is about fundamentally having a really clear plan, really clear data, and really and measuring your success and being prepared to stop if it's not working and, and move to a different direction. Um, we we do a psychosocial survey of our staff every two years. That gives it's given me a baseline. It's enabled us to see where the interventions have made a difference, and we'll do another one next year. So that's really important for me. So so I actually can see what my staff are telling me confidentially is making a difference or not, what the propensity of PTSD is, the propensity of depression, um, alcohol use, those type of things enable me to get a sense of are we making a difference. Now, when I looked at our second psychosocial survey, I was horrified because things had gone backwards. Yeah. And I was thinking, this is silly, we've done all this work, well, what's going on? And people I trust said to me, no, no, what's happening is you've actually you've opened the box as an organisation on this issue. So things are going to get worse before they get better. Oh, that's people interesting. Now getting work cover, putting in work cover claims. They're, uh, they're, um, they're opening up about their issues. Um, and that's a good thing because the alternative is it's all below the line and happening in a way that, or in, in through behaviours or other things that actually can be quite destructive. So, so for me, that's the fundamental thing, um, um, that you must keep measuring and, and improving. And I know people get a bit uncomfortable sometimes when I talk about that in the context of our people, but it works for our patients. It's no different. It's about actually having a plan that's evidence-based and being prepared to constantly test yourself um, and be held accountable. Every single member of an organisation from the board down must be accountable for mental health, must have clear measures of how they're going to improve mental health. Um, otherwise, it, it, you can do a whole lot of things that look attractive but don't actually make a slightest bit of difference to the wellbeing of your staff. Yeah. And when I put that question to Graham, he he was quite vocal in his, you know, he said, he look, he goes, he's stepping out of the role, but what, he's... Uh, wish would be would to, to have some kind of mandatory uh, check-in almost every six months that every member of the police force would actually have to sit down with a, a member of a wellbeing team and you know have that sort of chat when they're well so that when they are in crisis they're much more likely to actually reach out and I loved that idea because you know you know we, you and I have had this chat before about you know I, I feel the need that we need to have wellbeing models that not only encourage people to reach out but really encourage organisations to reach in as well, and um, I'm wondering whether AV have thought about that sort of process whereby there's regular check-ins where people, uh, you know, have to sort of come in and sit down and have a check-up, um, you know, in, in terms of whether they have physical and mental health check-ups as part of their ongoing employment. So Graham's a very wise man, and he's <laughs> absolutely right, Erin. I think um, for me, um, we've, we've implemented, um, moved away from our reactive programs to more proactive programs. So we have what we call SMART which essentially is a program where we encourage all of our staff to um, get a um, six-monthly uh, checkup with a psychologist. Um, so they form a relationship while they're well, like you go see a GP when you're well. Um, you, know, you might get your blood pressure checked. You might have a chat about losing weight and those sort of things. Your GP um, get on some medication to manage your blood pressure. Um, same principle with psychologists. Psychologists actually gets a baseline of how you're travelling, um, um, talks to you about what's working and what's not working in your life. You've got a new relationship with your psychologist. You can then take forward when things aren't going as well. So Graham's absolutely right. And we've seen a significant increase in our staff doing the SMART program. We've actually moved some of it online now to enable people uh, in the COVID environment, for example, to still continue that. But that sense of creating a... What's more normal in some ways to say, actually, I'm just seeing my psychologist every six months. I do. I see a psychologist every six months to help me deal with my life. Uh, and, and, and work pressures and family pressures, etc. Um, that's really important. So um, we're doing quite a bit of work in that space. We're encouraging people to 
have that regular checkup with the psychologist. Um, I think it's critical. We're also rolling out Mind Armour in the coming uh, coming weeks, which is the um, uh, Raw Minds program that previously called from the Black Dog Institute, which is the only evidence-based app out there that actually is working with that will that's been shown to make a difference to emergency services workers and their mental health and well-being, um, um, focusing on mindfulness and uh, and um, and managing your stress as well. So we're constantly looking at new things, both using technology, but also um, Graham's spot from um, having that regular checkup with a psychologist who can and you know just make sure things are going okay and 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 you know pick up maybe if things aren't. When you last saw me six months ago, you were talking about this. How's that going? Oh, well, it's a bit worse. Okay, well, what are we going to do about that? I think that's really important. So it's a, it's 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 really our focus now is on on proactive care rather than the reactive as much. So rather than the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff, how do you have it um, at the top of the cliff ready to catch people before? They get into those deep crises. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I think Don will be so happy to hear about the mindfulness um, focus because one of the podcasts we had earlier on in the season was Don talking about how he would love to see emergency services really focusing on some alternative um, areas towards uh, well-being, so looking at the mindfulness and the yoga and all that sort of thing. So I think Don will be wrapped to hear about that. Look, I know we're coming towards the end of our time, but I've got a couple of more quick questions for you before I let you go. Um, one of the things that we've been talking about in some of our other podcasts as well is, and you've touched on this um, already yourself, is the, the need to really support our retirees as they transition through from and generally we do find with, you know, those in emergency services, it's been a huge part of their life. A lot of people, like yourselves, it's been their lifelong career too. And so it's going to be quite difficult to transition out of that. And I certainly spoke to Graham about that and I asked him how prepared he was or did he think he was really ready to take that uniform off for the last time. But certainly for a lot of our members in Code 9 where they've been ill health retired and sometimes that's happened quite suddenly and there hasn't been the opportunity to really prepare for that either. Um, do you think our emergency services are really doing enough at the moment to support people transitioning into retirement? Uh, no, I don't think we are. I think I think it's one of our biggest risks, um, uh, to be honest, Erin. I think when you look at um, someone whose whole life has been about um, uh, about putting on that uniform every day for um, 20 or 30 years or even 10 years if they're, for example, having to leave because of injury, um, it can have a profound impact on them. And, and um, you know, there's this... There's this sense out there historically that oh well when they retire they're not our problem anymore. I have a different view about that. I, I know Graham has a similar view to me that that they're that actually we've 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 been involved in the damage that's occurred. We have some level of responsibility to support them. So I think for us um, um, some of that is about we've worked with our, for example our retired uh, ambulance um, uh, um, group here in Victoria to establish a retired peer program where they've got um, we trained up there. Uh, retire, some retired staff to actually be peers to other retired staff and to connect them into mental health, both our services and also into um, the broader mental health um, system as a whole. That's really important because what we can find is someone 10 years later, um, you know, maybe had a whole lot of life events and all this starts coming back. And so how do we, and you know, they don't necessarily have the same specialist care that we've got while they're working for us. So how do we connect them into some of that to help them? I think the other thing for me is um, there are people who've left the organisation who want nothing to do with us, and I understand and respect that. Um, um, they've not necessarily left in the way they wanted to leave. Um, the, the, the relationship might be fractured. Um, but nevertheless, how do we help them? And that's where the work we've been doing with the Breakthrough Ride, uh, working through other organisations like Code9 and others, how, how can we support groups who support those 
um, members of our organisation who are no longer necessarily working for us, but who still have needs. And so a lot of our focus is recognising that there are others out there who can do a much better job than I can, the retired staff, because they've got the relationships our organisation may not have with them. Mm-hmm. So it is about recognising there are lots of different groups we need to support um, and, and who are doing some brilliant work, um, like yourselves, uh, um, as I mentioned, Breakthrough Ride, Fortin, there's a lot of groups out there that are really focusing on how to support um, um, uh, those emergency services workers who are no, who are no longer in the organisation but still need both that collegial approach and that, um, that support um, because their demons are still with them despite the fact that uniform's not there any longer. Yeah, absolutely. And another group I think that you know, we're focusing more on now as well, realising the huge protective effect that they can have on first responders and particularly the protective effect from going from having post-traumatic stress symptoms to developing PTSD is certainly the family. And I'm wondering, as one of the last questions, we've got a few minutes left, if you can sort of reflect on whether you think uh, we're doing enough within the emergency services to actually support the families who are supporting the first responders. Well, there's probably a theme coming through today. I don't think we're ever doing enough of anything. I think we always have to keep doing more. Yeah. But, but in the family space, that's a really interesting one. So while we've had uh, family um, uh, access to our services for many years, and we've just recently expanded that, for example, so members of um, the close family members can access all of our psychology, peer and other programs, we've actually expanded that now to parents of um, graduates because a lot of our graduates are younger, still living at home. So we've kept adapting our programs to reflect on a changing workforce. But the other important thing is um, how do you connect with families? So um, if we're constantly only dealing with the paramedic or the volunteer or the corporate staff member and not their family, the problem is their families may not be aware of all the services that we've got on offer or how to seek help. So we've, we've done a couple of things in our organisation. We've actually now got family members sitting in our psychological health and wellbeing group, which I chair, give us direct family experience of the issues of um, mental health from a family perspective. And these are uh, members of families who have got lived experience of staff, um, as their, their loved ones, our staff who have got mental health um, issues. So that's really important to hear that, hear that voice. The other thing, and Meg Dobie, our, uh, um, our principal psychologist, has been fundamentally driving this, has been a family website. So we actually have a site where families can go to to actually access um, um, information um, about our services without having to go through their partner or their loved one which allows them to have a place they can go to to seek help, seek support, look at symptoms, talk about what they're seeing in their loved ones to see how they might be able to help or refer them on as well. So I think um, um, you know, families are critical. They are often the first people to see something's not right um, and they are the ones that um, often have to deal with the issues of um, 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 someone's mental health journey and uh, often we're the brunt of that, um, particularly where... You know, it's impacting heavily on the behaviours of, of, um, of our paramedics and other staff members. So family care is really important. I don't think we've done enough collectively. We're starting to do a lot more work in that space. Um, um, and, and But it's not easy to build those relationships. So how do you find ways to do that that actually um, that, 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 that are safe? For example, you know, we're now having, um, we're now having um, uh, family sessions at the... Um, at our graduations where, where psychologists and others are there to talk to family members about what's going on and the support they can get. So constantly looking at ways we can open that up more broadly to families. But it is a critical issue and one we need to keep focusing on and be prepared to um, think differently about the ways in which we engage families um, so that they know 
they can go somewhere themselves to get the support they need. So can family members uh, utilise the services confidentially without their son or daughter or partner or sister or whoever know? Yes, they can. Yep, yep. yep. So um, all, all immediate family members can access our services um, the same as the paramedic um, or volunteer or corporate staff member can. Um, the challenge in the past has been that there may have been a fridge magnet up on the fridge, but they may not think that's for them. They may think it's for their loved one. Mm. So what we've tried to do, as I said, is, is create a family website where families can go to and actually get their own information so they don't have to go through their loved one um, and they can access those services confidentially um, at no cost. It's uh, fully covered by us. And are those services still available to them after their loved one has retired? Yeah, so they're available for the first 12 months. Um, um, so we, we still continue to provide for people's retirement um, 12 months full services of our um, all of our um, programs. But the, that's where we built in the retired peer program. So the retired peer program does allow an access point for people that uh, that might um, that might still require um, you know, support once they've retired. Um, the family members can also make contact, and we never turn anyone away. So the reality is, if someone made contact with us, that for example. Um, and retire, the loved one have retired five years ago and they've got a problem, we'll always support them, yeah. always find a way to get them the care they need. Oh, that's great. Um, Look, okay, so we're, we're out of time. You know I could always talk to you forever, Tony, but one, <laughs> one final question. This is a personal reflection. So looking yeah. back over your career to date with a real specific focus on your own mental health and well-being, and you've always been very honest, and that's why I will turn up to any conference and, and listen to you talk over and over because I always take something new away from it. Is there anything that you would have done differently when it comes to protecting your mental health and even looking back and how it's impacted your family? Looking back, do you think, oh, I wish I had have done something a little bit different or even implemented something a bit sooner into my mental health and wellbeing strategy? Um, you know, what are the key lessons that you've learnt from everything over the years? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I thought I was immune to it. Um, you know, like, you know, so if you talk about stigma and things before, I thought this is what happened to other people. It didn't happen to me. And, you know, the, the thing for me that was the, the biggest wake-up call was when my first marriage broke down back years ago. And um, um, and at the time, I was struggling with that. And I went to pick up that phone, I reckon, 10 times. In fact, I picked it up many times when I put it back down um, in the sense of, oh, this is silly, I can manage this, this is ridiculous. So that's the thing for me. I wish I had have been talking to a psychologist from the day I started. Um, I wish I had have been um, um, seeking help and support earlier uh, to understand, um, um, you know, things that I could change in my life to make, you know, my life better and my life better for those around me. So that's the biggest one for me, um, that, that, um, that, that once I formed a relationship with a psychologist, I never looked back, and it's, a, um, it's something I quite openly talk about. I think the other thing for me is, you know, I've noticed, um, you know, not now, but when my daughter was first born, I was um, I was struggling with a few issues, and one of the ones I'm, you know, pretty upfront about was I couldn't bath it by myself. I struggled often got quite anxious bathing it by myself. And it was interesting. I eventually worked through it was related to some cases I'd attended very early on my career that had no impact on me at the time, but which had actually sort of um, found their way back out to the surface. And, you know, we live with every case we do. Um, they, they stay with us. Um, they're always sitting there quietly often to the side, but you never unsee them. And so um, being prepared to talk about those things and have that relationship with psychologists, I wish I had I've had it many, many years earlier. Um, um, uh, it, it certainly is... Um, um, uh, certainly made a difference to me. Wow. So knowing that everyone that's listening out there at the moment, we have thousands of members in our 
overt and covert groups in Code 9 and some of them will be family members that are listening and obviously with everything that's happening with COVID at the moment, a lot of us are really struggling. So for anyone who's listening at the moment and is feeling a bit frustrated and they're struggling, have you got any final words of wisdom for them? Um, Talk about how you're feeling. Mm. Uh, uh, Talk to someone you trust about how you're feeling. Um, It's normal. Um, The way you're feeling, you know, whether it's the impact of COVID or other things in your life, um, that's normal. And, and, you know, the life and the jobs we do take their toll. Um, And so, you know, um, we're not superhuman. Each and every one of us needs to take the opportunity to recognise that and uh, pick up the phone, Um, be it a trusted friend, um, support service, um, um, Code 9 and others. There are plenty of people out there who are there to help you um, and for talk about how you feel. The day you pick up that phone and start having a conversation can be life-changing. Absolutely. Great, great words of advice. As always, thank you so much, Tony Walker. You're a gem. Thanks, Erin. Lovely to chat to you.